Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello there, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick McGuire. Yes, Matt Shirley is still on holiday. Cracking show for you today. We're talking what Labour's challenges are in 2023 in just a moment. But before then, time for another great columnist panel. Today, it was Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Uh, morning, Robert. How are you? I'm fine, Patrick. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Good Christmas. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it's all right, yeah. Back in, uh, back on the Humber. Oh, uh, yeah, East Yorkshire, yeah. I just uh, villaged uh, my brother-in-law's place just outside of Hull. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Lovely. Hi, Patrick. You two, you two time in the same uh, cohort of Times trainees? Uh, I wasn't a trainee, but I was... Uh, you were hired on the same day? Uh, pretty much, 1991. And we were, we were... The sort of crazy young kids yeah. on the features department in in the early nineties sent out to do silly things, and you still are. And I still well, Alice has graduated to being a serious political <laughs> commentator, still whereas I just still do the <laughs> stupid stuff. Hang on, well, this what is this item if not serious political? No, commentary? he gets a spray tan though. Yeah, once a year I get a spray tan. <laughs> yeah, no, he gets a spray tan. I knew, so somebody, I was, I knew somebody was going to mention the spray tan. <laughs> I thought I'd left it behind me in That's 2022. Unfair. Right, well, given given we're talking serious <laughs> politics, Robert, I'll start with you. Yeah. Uh, Rishi Sunak, big speech today. Keir Starmer, big speech tomorrow. But the question is, has a speech from a politician ever changed your mind about anything at all? Uh, yes, it has. And not so much a New Year's speech. I think we don't really, didn't really do New Year's speeches in this country, although we, apparently we now do. I mean, they have the State of the Union, don't they, in America? And mm. Putin didn't this year, but he, he usually bangs on for four or five hours. Uh, it's a relatively new thing here. Uh... The Kinnock speech at Bournemouth in 1985, it didn't change my mind, but it gave me huge encouragement as I was a young a Labour Party activist at the time uh, battling against the militant tendency. And Kinnock, in that famous speech, where Eric Heffer walked off the platform. And you can see my dad in the background looking slightly bemused. Who was a, who was a Labour MEP? Yeah, and not that time, but it, he was a, at the conference. Uh, so that they gave me uh, huge encouragement. Uh, and I suppose... The other one, the other Kinnock one, would be the Sheffield Rally in '92. We're all right. We're all right, and uh, that was and they weren't. That had the opposite effect uh, on a, on an awful lot of people, I think. So yeah, I think 
Uh, yeah, they do. They are important. I mean, Thatcher's speeches, ladies not for turning and all that, they're a big deal. So I don't know about changing people's minds, but they set, they set an agenda. Alice, what do you think the point of these two big interventions from uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer are? And do you think they'll? Uh, do you think anyone will be paying attention? I think there's always a problem doing them at New Year. And I remember David Cameron was one of the first to start it. And it's like going on a diet or you know, <laughs> any of those New Year resolutions that they always get superseded by what happens. So, you know, it's great to say, let's have all, you know, all um, more maths or, you know, let's all do maths A-level. But actually what's going to happen is we're going to have strikes again. We're going to have the NHS falling over. We're going to have all these different issues that are so much more important than maths. There are no more maths teachers. It's a very unlikely thing to happen. It's just... It, yeah. it, it's worse than window dressing. It is a sort of, you know, let's all go on a diet. And actually, we know it never happens. It's not reading the room, is it? If that's the best thing you can come up with. I mean, yeah, in a perfect world, yeah, everybody would study maths to 18. Wonderful. But when uh, ambulance drivers are being told to dump seriously ill patients in A&E, even if there aren't any beds, it's kind of more pressing concerns. You can count the number of hours people are being left on trolleys and yeah. waiting in hospital yeah, car parks. Yeah, do Long yeah. division and addition yeah. or whatever. Uh, so you're not, you're not convinced that this is the answer to the country's woes, Robert? Maths to 18. Yeah. I think it's fine. Did I mean, you I, study maths to I 18? No, I would have struggled to... I barely studied maths to 14. I mean, I did... I did. I just scraped my O-level, as they were then, but I pretty much lost uh, my, uh, my way with maths when I was 14, uh, like a... I guess a lot of people do. Yeah, it's a great idea. I think particularly if you're studying, if you're looking at sort of practical maths, uh, probability is a useful thing to know about. Uh, journalists often fall foul of that. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the kind of things that are helpful with running your life and uh, using data, that kind of thing. If it were just more and more esoteric maths, as it seemed to be when I was, when I was a kid, you know, got more and more... Uh, further away from um, a certain level maths is more letters than it is numbers and that's when a lot of us go oh dear i can't really cope i with have this. no idea what any of this yes means. and if it's if it's that then i don't I think that's fairly pointless but if it were if it was sort of practical uh, uh, applications of maths then great yeah but it's in the where we sit in january 2023 it's not what most people are talking about or thinking about or worrying about it also <laughs> has the ring alice of a policy that's <laughs> been announced a few times before obviously mm. michael gove had a version of this policy when he was Education Secretary. Ed Miliband pledged to do it if he became Prime Minister. Obviously, he didn't. Um, and obviously, our own Times Education Commission mm. recommended it too. It's not, a, it's not a new idea, is it? Well, the person who most famously recommended it was Liz Truss, sadly, actually. Um, so she must be fuming because one of the, you know, the issues she most wanted was childcare and she hasn't got that, but she's got mass back, which she campaigned for. And I had a run-in with her because I wrote a column on how I thought it was ridiculous to force everyone to 18 to do maths. And her, one of her parents is a maths teacher anyway, mm. so we had a lengthy uh, text debate about why I was completely wrong. And um, she was very good humoured about it, but I just think, even you look at her and, you know, even she didn't benefit from having done so much maths. And you have to be really <laughs> with maths to do practical maths to do stuff that you're going to actually use later mm. on which would have helped her too but i mean you you just i just look at it and think these children you know i've got four kids and three of them didn't do maths a level and one of them is and that's because they really love it but if you don't change the syllabus i don't think many children are going to be able to do it to be honest it's and then the, they're going to flounder and then they feel like failures it's got the look of a bit of a hobby horse i mean michael gove was real traditionalist and he wanted to mm. bring back classics and so on and that, you know fair enough if it were down to me, I'd have everyone studying history to 18, you know. But uh, it's, as, as I repeat, it is not a uh, pressing problem. If that is his vision, it's a bit 
narrow. Mm. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what else Rishi Sunak mm. has to say. And obviously, he's going to pledge, I think, to take personal charge of the NHS crisis. So we'll see mm. if there's any more uh, meat on the bones of that mm. overnight briefing. Uh, Alice, speaking of kids, your column this morning, a uh, bit of a tribute to Vivian Westwood. Uh, you're worried that Gen Z don't know how to don't know how to play the rebel as kids did in the 80s, 70s. Well, I was just talking about her as a role model because she was fairly astonishing. Um, and in fact, very sadly, she didn't choose me, but she chose my German exchange. We were walking down the King's Road when I was about 15 and I was showing her the sights of London. And Vivian Westwood cycled past and actually stopped and asked my German exchange to be her model. Um, and from then on, I was was rather obsessed by her but she just taught you how to rebel and she was just and she was never negative you look at it now and I was comparing her to Andrew Tate bizarrely but Andrew Tate's all about stirring people up it's always trying to make boys anti-girls it's it's always about sort of it's it's visceral it's nasty and it's about money and he's monetizing children whereas Vivian West wasn't monetizing children what she was saying is rebel is to you know is to look at the status quo and change it but in a way it was more about sort of not wearing knickers which is what she famously didn't do when she went to Buckingham Palace it wasn't about being nasty or mean or vile, which is what Andrew mm. Tate does. It's harder to rebel when you've got an, the eight. What was she? Eighty-two, Vivian Westwood. Mm. So if you've got an eighty-two-year-old who doesn't wear knickers, and his <laughs> and, and and your parents have got tattoos and earrings and listen to the same bands that you do, it, rebellion's hard, isn't it? We didn't. We had it easy. Our rebellions were easier because we were rebelling against something. That was essentially still so quite stayed and something sort of fifties. Mm. Still, I mean, okay, the sixties had happened, but our, our mums and dads weren't like that. Uh, so you're struggling uh, to do to to make those kind of youthful, visible rebellions that uh, came easily to us. I, I, which is Alice's point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, we're going to talk about another uh, wild child. Uh, <laughs> aging not so gracefully in just a moment uh, Robert in your column in the Times yesterday you mm. shared uh, your slight annoyance at the way Boris Becker has uh, emerged from prison uh, quite so quickly he'd served just eight months of his 30 months uh, prison sentence for hiding assets to avoid paying debts and now mm. he's joining the group of celebrities that are cashing in on prison time yeah I mean I think that's inevitable and uh, I know that your guest is uh, I wouldn't say he's cashed in but he's written a book about his time in prison and I think that's fair you know that's fair enough and Boris was I guess he was always going to do that my objection is that Boris is he's, he's shown zero remorse uh and I do think I'm not somebody who thinks throw away the key but I do think there's a it undermines the justice system if you sentence somebody to 30 months and then they serve just a bit over 7 because uh, that undermines people's faith in in the whole business. It's like, oh, well, he's just done... Tw- what's the point, you know, in, in saying this sentence is such and such when you're going to serve 25% of it? Uh, especially, and I made the point slightly lightheartedly, I mean, you know, justice is blind, but it seemed, it seemed everyone should be treated equally. But you know with a, with a, a celebrity, certainly, uh, you're, I mean, we're thinking of Jonathan Aiken and... Uh, I can't, there must be other ones that are... Jeffrey Archer. Jeffrey Archer, of course, yeah. Uh, and then Boris. Uh, Chris you, Hewn, other... Yeah, you know they're, you know they're going to get a payday yeah, exactly. out of it. So, yeah, it doesn't seem entirely entirely right. Well, let me bring in Chris Atkins, who's a filmmaker and author of the book A Bit of a Stretch. He knows a bit about this subject, having served some time in prison. He joins us now. Morning, Chris. Morning, everyone. Uh, what do you think of Robert's, um, Robert's argument then? Obviously, um, Boris Becker... Uh, it would be strange if he didn't come out of prison and uh, be well remunerated for uh, talking about his experiences. I mean, obviously, you went to prison for fraud and uh, came out and 
you know, not that, no offence, you weren't a, a, a massively well-known celebrity despite people knowing your work. Uh, you know, you had a best-selling book, a podcast series and writing several articles. Um, what do you think uh, when people uh, say, you know, Boris Becker hasn't been inside for, for long enough and, uh, you know, is now sort of returned to, returned to celebrity as if almost, well, not as if nothing's happened, but, you know, he's returned to celebrity without a hitch? I think it's two issues that Robert's got, both of which are fair. One is the early release or seemingly early release. And he's right. It is kind of justice is blind and that anyone in his situation would probably have got out at that time. I don't think his fame in any way got him out early. What what happened? I've just been checking this. What happens is there's an early release scheme which deports Mm -hmm. people back to their home country. And obviously there's a lot of news about uh, foreign nationals clogging up British jails and can't we send them back where they came from, basically? Mm. And that's what happened to him. So he got, he seemingly got out early because we what we do deport foreign nationals out of our prisons as, as quickly as possible. And that's that's what happened to him. In terms of the cashing in, yeah, I mean, he got out and I think it was reported that he it was £400,000 he got paid already for a TV interview. Um, yeah, that's right, 450, 450 grand, the German, German station, yeah. And, and, and there's, you're right, there, there is probably more, more to come. Alex Gibney, who's, who's a really brilliant documentary maker, is making a documentary about him for Apple mm. TV, uh, which I'm sure lots of people are going to watch because it's an astonishing story, isn't it? He was this child who kind of came from behind the Berlin Wall and then aged, you know, in his teens, he was an astonishing tennis player. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when he was sort of winning Wimbledon, who was great to watch, and then everything went spectacular tips up for him and he lied about his bankruptcy payments and and you know went to prison for it um so it, it, it's an it's an it's an incredible story that i think people are going to want to 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 hear what he has to say about it and as a consequence of that he's going to kind of get paid mm. money i think it's right it's good that people who go through the system will talk about it because you know, Boris Becker is going to reach millions more people than I ever could. And I think the conditions in Wandsworth were disgraceful, counterproductive, abusing people with mental health conditions. And I wrote a book about it. Some people mm. have read that and that's got this message out a bit. But it's not like Boris Becker can come along and say, our prisons are terribly counterproductive and do more harm than good and are barbaric. Then maybe that will have an impact and will change mm. prisons for the better. So I, it's good that he talks about it. But you're right. It does stick in the craw a bit that it's like, hang on, aren't you now being paid for crime? I guess, and it's a, and, and 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 it's a bit of a paradox. I mean, I doubt he's mm. going to talk much about his crime because his crime's quite boring, <laughs> same as mine. Like no one's to hear about tax fraud. They want to hear what it's like <laughs> in the showers and what the food's like and slopping out. That's the juice. So I don't think he's going to wax lyrical too much about his crime because it's all pretty grubby and actually quite dull. I think he's going to talk more about prison, and I hope he does. Yeah, I mean that's the point in a way, isn't it? I mean, I think Chris and Boris are very distinct cases because um, I haven't read your book, but. Uh, I know that it's a, a lot of it is about the inequities of the prison system. Yeah. Uh, and not just look at me, I was, this is what, I'm, I'm famous, this is, I went to prison. I don't think, Boris isn't, apart from anything else, Boris is not allowed back in this country for 10 years. I, do, I suspect Boris is not going to become a campaigner uh, for, for British penal, penal for, reform. For British penal reform. <laughs> no. Uh, I think he might inadvertently sh- do that. Maybe. I think he might I'm also not entirely sh- sure, and I think it was you that wrote a piece when he was released. I'm not entirely sure that we can trust the accuracy of anything Boris might say on that score anyway. I mean, I think somebody, I, I think it was you where I wrote that he was talking about, wrote, yeah, yeah. he was talking about being banged up with murderers and so on, and, it was, and that was possibly a little bit colourful. 
a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think Boris is going to be a great witness. It's sort of kind of joining the Howard League anytime soon. That was Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. We also heard from filmmaker and author Chris Atkins on the penal system and how celebrities fare behind bars. Remember, you can read Robert and Alice every week. Just pick up a copy of The Times or get a digital subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yesterday, we looked at the fortunes of the Conservative Party, one of the most formidable election-winning machines in the Western world. Keir Starmer's job in 2023 is to try to turn Labour into a party of government again after the low point of 2019 and make sure this year is his last before he enters Downing Street as Prime Minister. But although Labour has a 20-point lead in the polls at the moment, there are plenty of hurdles ahead. Rishi Sunak has steadied the Tory ship and he is personally more popular than his party. We've heard repeatedly in our Times Radio focus group that while swing voters may be fed up with the Tories, they haven't exactly fallen in love with the leader of the opposition either. And the electoral map... Meanwhile, it's tougher for Labour today than it was for Tony Blair, with the the first-past-the-post system, boundary changes and the SNP's dominance in Scotland setting the bar for victory very, very high. Well, what does the year hold and what could Keir Starmer still get wrong? To talk through these questions, I'm joined now by Lord Mandelson, the former Cabinet Minister, who, of course, was the architect of that victory in 1997. Uh, Good morning, Lord Mandelson. Good morning, Patrick. And what what was that I was hearing at the top of your programme about you speculating that I'd be throwing waspish grenades during this interview? Uh, I, I, I don't recall that. I don't recall oh, that. Oh, really? You've got, s- very short, you've got a very short memory. I mean, what's wrong with politicians or even ex-politicians like me being sort of clear and outspoken in what they're saying? Well, we need more of that in politics, not less, surely. Well, I hope you're. I hope you're. Uh, I hope you're uh, going to speak uh, clear and uh, make clear arguments right now, Lord Mandelson. Yeah, I bet you do. 
Yes. Uh, well, does Keir Starmer know his own mind? Because you wrote in the Sunday Times uh, over the weekend that uh, there are lots of things he he's at risk of doing, focusing excessively on constitutional reform, on reform of the House of Lords, perhaps emphasising putting the environment front and centre, uh, giving himself a bolder definition as a sort of eco-warrior when he should be focusing on the economy. Do you, do you worry that he... Uh, he might not. Uh, he might not have the discipline to focus relentlessly on the things that matter to voters. To voters. No, I think he's being extremely disciplined. If he hadn't been so disciplined, the Labour Party wouldn't be in the position it is uh, now. I mean, the way I see the year ahead is basically that the country is in the doldrums. I mean, the government is in a doom loop and the Tory party is coming apart at the seams. Now, what Keir Starmer is going to reveal, I think, in the speech he's making tomorrow, uh, is his view that the country wants and needs two things. It wants hope and it wants uh, change. Uh, neither is being offered by the government, as Rishi Sunak basically made clear in his New Year message when he said, you know, told, told us all, don't get your hopes up. This year is going to be as bad as the last one. And I think that what Keir Starmer is is going to do is demonstrate a rather more sort of upbeat uh, uh, view of the uh, uh, future. I think uh, he, he believes we can and we should do better as a country. Uh, this depends on getting the economy onto a higher growth path. Um, but I think that's also going to pave the way for a year during which Labour is going to be changing gear. Uh, I think we're going to see a much stronger uh, focus on policy direction and priorities, clear goals, clear plans, uh, and an absolute determination to implement those plans in an effective way should Labour be elected at the next election. I think that's what the country wants to hear. It certainly needs to. Will he be constrained? You talk about the country having been left in the doldrums by uh, 12 years of Conservative government. It's not entirely clear whether the economic outlook will improve between now and the next election. To what extent will Keir Starmer be constrained in what he can say, not just this week, but over the next two years, by the the mess most economists, uh, indeed much of the Labour Party and the Labour leadership, know he will inherit? You know, he can't... Uh, he can't do anything too radical, given the given the fiscal situation he'll likely find himself in in 2024, i.e. a bad one. So to what extent is that mission well, of painting an optimistic picture constrained by the circumstances? I think he's going to be realistic about the tax and borrowing constraints the country faces after what's happened and what's been series of blows that have been delivered to the economy, both by uh, Johnson and, and by Liz Truss. But that doesn't mean to say that he doesn't, that he shouldn't be ambitious about what can be achieved. What can be achieved is as a result not just of spending more, investing more, uh, but of reforming. And I think that's, uh, that's what Keir uh, wants to see. I think he will obviously concentrate uh, on the uh, economy uh, and how a major green prosperity deal can be harnessed to lift economic growth. But he will also be wanting to think through important advances in, the, in how the National Health Service operates uh, and in public service reform and delivery more, more widely. I think he would also uh, want to focus on how our very centralised system uh, of government uh, in Britain, particularly in England, 
uh, can change to bring more power and funding to all parts of the country. But he also recognizes, and I agree with him on this, we've got to secure our national defenses given what's happening in the rest of the world. You know, we're not going to see uh, Putin stepping back anytime uh, soon. So we've got to be prepared for a very, very challenging uh, uh, pattern of events that are emerging in the world. So he's got to focus on the economy, domestic policy uh, and reform in the delivery of public services, reforming the way in which we run our country and decentralize it so that we can get power and funding into local areas. But we've also got to secure our national defenses. And I think those are clear goals. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about them in the coming year. Do what, what more uh, in terms of, do you think the job of internal party reform um, you know, he's vanquished the left, Jeremy Corbyn has gone and he's, by all accounts, not coming back. Do you think the party is now, the Labour Party is not the party it was in 2019? Do you think there's more to do on that front or is that job largely finished? No, there's always more to do. But I think you put your finger on a really, really important point about British politics. And I think that what people are beginning to see is the difference between the Conservative and Labour parties in a very, very interesting and fundamental way. The Tories are still in the hands of the populist right who controlled Sunak. Labour is back in the mainstream uh, centre, I mean, led by a strong and assertive leader uh, in Starmer. And that's basically the story of British politics since the 2019 election. Uh, I mean, essentially, Starmer has sorted out the extremists on his left, while the Tories are still trapped by theirs on their right. And I think it's, you know, um, interesting when you when you think about what's happened in British politics. In a sense, both the Tories and Labour deserted the centre ground and went populist. I mean, Labour under Corbyn, the Tories under Johnson. And what a choice that was in uh, 2019. But what's happened since then is that Starmer's seen off the Corbynites, the anti-Semites uh, and the rest, Johnson, of course, didn't even try to do that because he was part of them. He then blew himself up. Uh, the parties remained in the hands of its right wing, who are now plotting to bring Johnson back into number 10. Uh, this is a fascinating uh, picture of British politics uh, now in the coming year. And I think it's going to set the scene uh, for and for frame how people decide on how they're going to vote at the next general election. Despite all that, though, despite the well-publicised um, and, you know, quantitative, quantitatively uh, true uh, problems the Conservative Party has in terms of its public popularity. The country still quite likes Rishi Sunak, if you look at the polls, and they're not particularly enamoured with Keir Starmer. You know, Labour's poll lead has not been, not corresponded to a huge increase in Keir Starmer's personal popularity. Would that, would that worry you, given that elections, as much as they are battles between two parties, are Sorry, battles you, between you... two respective Prime Ministers? You, you really think that the British public think that Rishi Sunak's in control of his party? You've got to be joking. Well, I, no, I mean, I, he, they... he, he, bob, he bobs around like a cork <laughs> as there's different factions and groups amongst uh, Tory MPs uh, see him off in any policy he wants to embark on. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's a sort of sort of daily sort of soap opera, a sort of hand-to-mouth uh, a government that we're seeing in this country because Sunak is not in control of his party. I mean, he may have good intentions. I suspect that he does. Um, I, I suspect that he does want to sort of pursue uh, new and consistent policies, but his party are not going to allow him to do so, are they? But 
Despite that, if you ask the public who their preferred Prime Minister is, Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are basically neck and neck. What does that say about Keir Starmer as a candidate for high office? It says that during the course of this year, as people see and hear more about what Keir Starmer plans for the country, when they judge that alongside the determination and frankly, ruthlessness in which he's turned the Labour Party itself round, uh, that people will be able to judge who they think uh, can take Britain uh, forward. And I think that the more people hear from Keir Starmer, uh, the message, the policies, the direction he's setting out, which is spelling hope and change for our country, rather than just more of the same hand-to-mouth uh, flying by the seat of his pants government uh, uh, from the current administration, the more they're going to decide enough is enough. We need to put the Tories out to rest and we need a Labour government uh, to take on the challenges our country faces. How should Keir Starmer approach the big question of industrial unrest? Because it's a sticky wicket for any Labour leader, particularly one who wants to modernise their party and present it as a serious party of government, to be caught between the demands of business and the public and also organised Labour on, on one hand. Do you think Keir Starmer has got the right uh, set of lines for uh, for this new era oh, of industrial unrest? He's got to continue what he's been doing. He's got to put himself on the side of the public, on the side of the public services. Uh, and the public services don't just need to, you know, reward those properly, uh, uh, th- those who work and run those public services, but they've also got to see those public services embracing reform and change Uh, and the workforce in our public service is going along with those changes. So he's got to emphasise both of those things, and that's what he's doing. You may have read in the the Times uh, in recent days, Lord Mandelson, the suggestion of uh, unrest within and towards the shadow cabinet and their uh, somewhat lacklustre performance in in some briefs. Do you think this year is the year that Keir Starmer ought to consider a uh, a reshuffle of his top team? I think every year starts with the Times writing something like that, isn't it? I mean, I've... <laughs> every every week, every week, Lord Madison. No, 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 not every week. Just you know. Uh, I mean, so, what are you asking me? Are you asking should there be me... a shadow cabinet reshuffle? <laughs> I mean, first of all, I have no view on that, no no position, and why should I? Because I'm not leader of the Labour Party. And secondly, I think the shadow cabinet is doing pretty uh, pretty darn well. Um, I. I you know, look, if if he thinks that certain faces would be better attached to different briefs, that's up to him. I mean, I, I really don't have a view on that. I'm afraid. I'm 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 surprised, but I'll uh, I'll respect uh, I'll respect your vow of silence. I'm 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 sorry that that wasn't a good enough grenade for you. Patrick. <laughs> Not ins- insufficiently <laughs> washbiz, insufficiently washbiz. <laughs> um, do you do you think though, uh, Lord Mandelson, that he is a Keir Starmer is a worthy heir to? To Blair, when you look at when you, because obviously you know Tony Blair very well, you were there in the room for those election victories. Mm. Do you see similarities? Obviously, making these historical comparisons is always a bit of a fool's errand. But do you see uh, a worthy inheritor to the very select club of Labour election winners? <laughs> well, I think that will be demonstrated and proved when the election comes and when Labour wins it under his leadership. Uh, I mean, I can't sort of prove something that's going to happen you know, in advance uh, next year. But I think he is heading in the right direction, yes. i tell you what I also like about Keir Starmer. I like his decency, his values. I think he's a very honest and straightforward politician. Uh, He's not a gimmicky uh, politician. He just doesn't sort of 
you know, luxuriate in sort of sound bites and photo opportunities, all the things that people used to associate wrongly, actually, with new labour, but they did, uh, uh, for which I was, you know, held responsible in my uh, day. I like the fact that he's serious. I like the fact that he's a thoroughly professional individual uh, who's run a really serious public service in our country. Uh, the Crown Prosecution Service, when he was the sort of crime-busting uh, director of public prosecutions, you know, he's uh, he's got very, very strong credentials. Don't say stronger, I might say, than some politicians aspiring to high office in our country. And I think that when people reflect on that uh, and consider it, I think they will think, yes, actually, it's a bit of seriousness, it's a bit of professionalism uh, underpinned by good, solid, decent values that we need in our country. And I think that's why people will vote for him when the election comes. You advised him at the weekend in the Sunday Times against turning into a British version of Greater Thunberg, which has uh, uh, generated quite a lot of comment, uh, as your uh, interventions uh, tend to do on, on, on online uh, and among oh. climate activists. What, what exactly did you mean by that? Uh, that? That he shouldn't be gimmicky. Uh, the, the tea, that you know, he should have strong uh, policies uh, uh, for climate change. He's got those. We all know uh, that uh, science accepts the, cli the climate damage uh, that we've done. Uh, it's man-made, so we have to unman-make it. I mean, that's the point of the UK's climate legislation. It's the point of our international treaty uh, obligations. What we're lacking is a clear, consistent national plan for decarbonising. Uh, the the, uh, the economy, uh, and we're also lacking the industrial policies uh, that will boost green innovation uh, during the course of this profound energy transition that we're going to uh, follow, that will enable UK supply chains, UK industry and UK jobs to benefit uh, from the energy transition underway, uh, creating new demand for renewable sources of energy, uh, based on our on Britain's brilliant science and technology base, so it, it's both things that we've got to get right. The decarbonisation, the net zero uh, target that we've set ourselves, uh, for which we now have you know a statutory backing in the legislation that's, that we've enacted, plus the industrial and employment benefits that are going to flow from it. Both those things are equally important. They're both sides of the same coin, uh, and uh, I'm personally very committed to them. I mean, I know that the Times for some extraordinary reason, God knows why, said in its report of my Sunday Times article that I want Keir Starmer to drop his climate policies. I want the very opposite of that. I want him to be serious about them. I want him to be consistent. Uh, and I want him to pursue them with complete determination, not with gimmickry uh, and not through sort of image building, as some people seem to think he needs. And just before I let you go, Lord Madison, you've been generous with your time, uh, this morning. I wanted to know, Pete, uh, Keir Starmer hasn't come from your wing of the party. He, uh, you know, has had, you know, undergone a, a familiar journey from the uh, Labour Party's left to its soft yeah, left. But hold, to... hold, hold on a moment, Patrick. I don't know what you mean by my wing of the party. You mean my era, my new Labour era. You're right. Because what he was doing during the new Labour era, era was, you know, being a very effective uh, lawyer and becoming a really tough director of public prosecutions in this country. So inevitably, he didn't, he wasn't part of the new Labour uh, era. What he's got to do now is to, as it were, take it all forward. I mean, we face new challenges in our country 
uh, in this uh, uh, century. He's got to build on, adapt, take new labor forward, reinvent uh, new labor in a sense for a new century, not just sort of reheat what we did in 1997. I don't want to see that. But you're convinced he's, uh, he's sound on the questions that matter. I think he's very sound on three basic things. One, a pursuit of fairness, social justice and greater equality in our country. Secondly, that we have to run an economy in partnership with business. And thirdly, he doesn't wobble on defence and security. Those are three fundamentals in my view, and he's absolutely in the right place uh, from my judgment of him. Well, we'll see what the public think as the year unfolds. Lord Mandelson, former cabinet minister and architect of New Labour, thanks very much uh, for joining us on Times Radio. And thank you for being as washbish as you promised, uh, Lord Mandelson. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to bring you more on the question of what 2023 holds for Labour. Reacting to that now with me in the studio is Henry Zeffman, Times Associate Political Editor. Morning, Henry. Good morning. You were listening to Lord Mandelson there. Lots to cover, as you'd expect, uh, from an interview with uh, with Peter Mandelson, uh, who's obviously been there, seen it all, and is playing a uh, playing a role uh, in the wings of this project, very close to some of the people close to Keir Starmer, giving informal counsel, privately and publicly. What do you think of what you heard then? It was, um, you know, impeccably on message in a way that perhaps his piece over the weekend. Uh, in the Sunday Times in which he warned Keir Starmer against uh, turning into a British version of Greater Thunberg, becoming obsessed with constitutional reform. It was very supportive. What what do you make of that in the context of what we've heard from Peter Mandelson more recently? Well, look, I think he artfully swerved your last question uh, by denying that he had a wing of the Labour Party, Peter Mandelson, that is, which is obviously nonsense, right? He's from the right of the Labour Party, even if specifically the new Labour era of the right of the party, as he insisted. Um, and I think the fact that Peter Mandelson is giving such a supportive interview reminds you, as you put it in your question to Peter Mandelson, of the journey that Keir Starmer's been on, uh, from the soft left of the party, from willing to serve in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, from saying he thought he'd be an excellent prime minister, to expunging the Labour Party of Corbynism. But what I took Peter Mandelson's Sunday Times piece to be... Um, and some things he sort of hinted at in your interview to mean was him sort of saying to Starmer, you know, please hold the course, please stay, stay the course, remain, uh, you know, of of the, um, as Mandelson would have it, moderate right of the party, sensible governing, etc. Um, because there is that lingering concern, even among those who are currently delighted with Keir Starmer's leadership, that he is a little bit uncategorizable and a bit unknowable. Yes, because you and I wrote a piece uh, over the weekend uh, in the in the Times in which we sort of explored some of these questions. And the question, kissed, um, Peter Manson rather, dodged to the question of a shadow cabinet reshuffle. When we're looking at what the future holds for Labour in 2023... It's all about Labour landing their message, which they did notably with, you know, there was a front page of the Times uh, from the Shadow Justice Secretary Steve Reid over over the Christmas period about Labour's plans for law and order, not something we would have necessarily expected this time last year. But if Labour is to succeed in turning this year to its advantage and setting the agenda rather than benefiting from the Tory collapse, it's going to have to prosecute an agenda effectively and there are lots of questions within the Labour Party and without the Labour Party about the quality and the calibre of the team of spokespeople Keir Starmer has chosen to do that. Yeah, and look, as we wrote, one of the big reasons that this is this has been under consideration is actually because of how well Keir Starmer's doing, because that changes the question from 
which shadow cabinet might help us knock a few points off the Tory polling and get, get Labour into a position in the next election where uh, they might be able to get a bit close to the Conservatives, to, OK, hang on, if you're Keir Starmer, you're thinking, I'm probably going to be in government, I'm probably going to be Prime Minister, who do I actually want to be drawing up plans for the ministries that I want them to be running in government? And that's perhaps, not always, a different question. Um, the other thing uh, that I think um, underlies this... I mean, you talk about quality. I mean, you know, Labour has a real talent deficit and there's various reasons for that, but most simply that they lost loads of seats in the last few elections, uh, net. So there just aren't as many Labour MPs to choose from as there otherwise might be, certainly not of Keir Starmer's particular persuasion because Jeremy Corbyn, uh, you know, had a say over candidate selection, of course, in 2017, 2019. Um, So I think... uh, the reason I think a reshuffle will ultimately happen, though, is that Starmer's control over the Labour Party is so total now that while he is constrained by the quality and the number of Labour MPs he has, he's not constrained politically. His control over the Labour Party is total. And so if he wants a chance to choose pretty much unmediated who's going to make up his team in government should he get there, this is it. Who's up and who's down? Well, this is the thing that it's a little bit hard to say. I mean, we, the, the, the Times, Brilliant Times Picture Desk illustrated our story with... Um, basically a load of shadow cabinet ministers that they themselves hadn't heard of. And these, of course, are people who follow the news every day and, you know, are looking at thousands of photos of politicians every day. So I'd say if you are a shadow cabinet minister who's been in the shadow cabinet for three years and you were in that quiz um, set by people who who follow politics more closely than most, I'd be worried. Um, um, I mean, who is up is actually hard to know. I mean, the, 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 the person who is you know, basically the only person in the shadow cabinet you only hear complete effusive praise about is Rachel Reeves. But beyond that, you know, name me a member of the Shadow Cabinet and I can find you someone around Keir Starmer who doesn't think they're up to the job. I can probably also for some you find people around Keir Starmer who think they are up to the job. So that's part of the challenge that this slightly unnerable, slightly undefinable Keir Starmer who keeps his cards very close to his chest, even with his team, will have to settle at some point. And what do you think, as we look ahead to 2023 the big outstanding questions for the Labour Party and for Keir Starmer are? Because they've sort of boxed off the Jeremy Corbyn question, although the when and the how of expelling him, which seems to be their settled will, or at least preventing him from running as Labour candidate, that's outstanding. But the, the bigger question of whether Jeremy Corbyn has a place in the Labour Party is settled. One of the bigger outstanding questions he still has to answer, there's still questions about his economic policy and what uh, how far he'll uh, deviate from the Tories' fiscal positions when he wins. What are the other big questions? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't get away from how huge that economic question is. Uh, you know, the, the mini budget, even if it was swiftly over, uh, swiftly undone by Jeremy Hunt uh, and latterly Rishi Sunak, uh, has changed the terms of the economic debate a little bit, I think. And um, I, I know there are people in Labour who fear that it will make voters more cautious about grand spending plans, even if Labour, as they promised they will, fully fund them, fully cost them. So, you know, I do think at a certain point, perhaps this year, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are going to give us, have to give us a much better sense uh, of how closely they will cleave to whatever the Conservatives go into the election with as their spending plans. Because, of course, remember that government of which Peter Madison was a part, the first new Labour government, for the first two years, uh, stuck to the Conservative spending plans. And the key difference then, though, was that Ken Clark and uh, and John Major had given them a growing economy that was growing at quite a clip. Now making that pledge is really tricky, is comparatively tricky because of the uh, because of the economic situation Britain finds itself in now. Yeah, look, as much as shadow cabinet ministers salivate at the prospect of getting into government, they do in their more reflective moments talk about how awful they think the inheritance 
would be and how different that is to new Labour who were able with a booming economy to hit the ground running and effectively claim the proceeds of that economy for their own social policy. Um, I think it's going to be rather different for Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves and, and the rest of his cabinet should he win the next election. Well, big questions for the Labour Party. It's not immediately clear whether Keir Starmer has the answers yet. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Red Box podcast. Remember, I'm here until Friday. And in the meantime, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get yours from.